Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Man, do you know what you're asking me? Do you know that this sorry son of a bitch has already put a, a warrant out for the rest of my wife as an accomplice? No, let me talk to you. Talk to the son of a bitch. Say, listen, have you have you done that? You know, have, have y'all put out a warrant for his what? an accomplice. Fred Gomez Carrasco seemed to have the upper hand. Yes, the heroin and cocaine smuggling impresario was stuck behind bars in the walls unit in Huntsville. But Carrasco also had guns. He had hostages and he had control of the Walls Unit library, turning the entire third floor of the prison education building into his own stronghold as he bartered for his freedom. But Jim Estelle, the director of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, had an ace up his sleeve. There is a warrant out for Mrs. Carrasco, but the, but the attorney, that bullshit. When the Huntsville prison siege began on Wednesday, July 24, 1974, Fred Carrasco's wife, Rosa, had called Jimmy Gillespie, an attorney for Fred. Then Rosa disappeared. Her whereabouts quickly became one of the siege's biggest mysteries. Here are two of Carrasco's lawyers discussing the unfolding crisis. Ruben Montemayor was on the ground in Huntsville, trying to help with the negotiations. Jimmy Gillespie was back home in San Antonio, about 200 miles to the west. Okay, now, Jim. There's a warrant out for uh, for Rosa. What what is the charge? What does it look like so far up there? Well, it got pretty hot here for a while, Jimmy. And, uh, Jesus Christ! But this situation about his wife is very very sensitive. <laughs> Some said Rosa was driving to Huntsville with her husband's gangland toughs to bust Fred out of prison. Others believed she fled to Mexico, where she and Fred had lived when they were on the lam from the cops in Texas. Based upon what the silence that we have had here, I do not even think Rosario is in San Antonio. Now, that's just an educated guess. Otherwise, I know that Rosie would have called me. But I just don't think she's in San Antonio, that's all. Jim, she's very concerned, and the minute that you hear from her, call me so I can relay the message to her. Well, I will, Reuben. If I had word, I would have called. Okay. I mean, I'm standing. I'm standing by the phone night and day, or where I can be reached by anybody, uh, just any time. But I just don't think she's here. Rosa was the love of Fred's life. He loved her smile, her eyes, you know, her crazy personality. Oh, she loved him to the day she died. The whole reason Carrasco had taken a plea deal for life in prison instead of fighting the charges that he tried to murder a cop in San Antonio was to spare Rosa from her own criminal charges. I hate the system uh-huh. because they used my wife as a chill against me uh-huh. when I was in court. 
Fred and Rose's love story was splashed across the newspapers. The star-crossed lovers of the drug underworld. The next Bonnie and Clyde. When Carrasco learned that his wife's freedom was again in jeopardy, he erupted. Again, one man bore the brunt of Carrasco's fury. Bobby Heard, the only prison guard taken captive during Carrasco's siege. Listen, he's fixing to kill us, please, for God's sake. This is human life. He was, he was, he was being everything he said he was. Now you fix to get us killed. Withdraw that warrant, please. Thank you, pardon? Withdraw that warrant. For God's sake, man. I don't think the authorities who have issued that warrant have any intention of prosecuting Rosa Carrasco if those hostages are come out there safely. In fact, I can almost guarantee it, and I will let his attorney go to the county attorney who issued that warrant and assure of that. But he has not contacted the county attorney. And you've got to encourage Fred to give his attorney a chance to work this. You're listening to Director Estelle on the phone with Bobby Hurd, part of a trove of real, in-the-moment audio recordings from the prison siege. I have talked to Fred, and Fred trusts me. He does. He trusts me. He does not trust you. Then you've got to... You've got to play the part of uh, part of the negotiating team, then, Mr. Hurd. I can if I'm dead. You can right now. You convince Mr. Hurd. Uh, you convince uh, Mr. Carrasco that his attorney should be given an opportunity to discuss this. Then she won't be prosecuted. I can. I can't make that promise, but I'm sure the attorney can get that promise. If he, it, he says it's not a matter of prosecution. Carrasco had been listening to their conversation. Suddenly, he chimed in. It's a matter of principle. I agree. Now, I know you want, he, want her here so he, she can talk to him. And I know he wants to talk to her because he loves her. But don't let any harm at all come to her. No way. I have, no, I have, that's it. No, don't, don't do anything. <laughs> For God's sake, man. <laughs> can't you, can't you do anything right? Can't you say anything? <laughs> All a man wants is to get out and for God's sake give him what he wants. <laughs> and do it now. Do it now before it's too late. Now Reuben and Fred were on the phone. Yet again, Ruben Montemayor was desperately trying to keep the peace, hoping to protect innocent lives from his own client's penchant for murder. Okay. Now, this is one of the things that came up. Okay. Now, let's, let's get to the bottom of it. And this is the way we're going to get to the bottom of everything, Fred. Now, now, don't close the door, Fred. I advise you. I advise you as your lawyer, don't close the doors, Fred, because you blow up or something. Let's, let's find out. Let's find out. Let me find out. No, Fred, they haven't, they haven't arrested or anything. Pero cuánto es el fiance? No, not, they can't set a, a, a bond unless they pick her up. There's no bond. Mira que desgraciado, Until they pick her up, but now, 
This is the other thing. Este, dijo uh, el uh, DA. Uh -huh. I talked to him. And, uh, and I talked to the director. Uh -huh. He says there will not be any indictments. They will not pick her up or anything if there's nobody hurt. Period. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, repítelo. Okay. There will not be any indictment filed or any arrest made unless you all don't uh, hurt anybody. You know, kill anybody, hurt anybody. Carrasco wanted assurances that Rosa would be safe. He also called on hostage Novella Pollard's daughter, Kathy, to deliver his demands to a wider audience. Kathy? Yeah, Mom. All right. Now, mm -hmm. I want you to call a news conference. You are to do it come hell or high water or what. You are to hold a news conference. All right. In Estelle's latest offer, he had agreed to provide Carrasco with bulletproof vests in exchange for the release of all the hostages. Estelle had also agreed to withdraw the criminal complaint against Fred's wife, Rosa. And finally, he demanded that Carrasco surrender. Now that was a deal-breaker. Kathy dutifully wrote down Carrasco's negotiation letter. Then she read it back to her mom. In regard to your proposal, not only do I find them childish, but humiliating. Any man with a prudent mind would realize that such a proposal is jeopardizing the lives of the civilian hostages, and at this moment, the lives of the inmate hostages. As far as your proposal concerning the vest, I can do without the vest, but concerning the false and unscrupulous indictments against my wife, I leave entirely up to your discretion. Regarding the third demand of the worldwide TV coverage, that is fine. Now, in my new and final demands, I will name accordingly that the only things I am asking for is transportation plus four hostages that I demanded since negotiations were started between us. And as my final threat, should these two demands not be met, a bomb with devastating power will be set off near Mr. Hurd and Mr. Branch, and the other bomb will be placed and ready to de detonate close to the remaining hostages. And the third bomb will be used on your chewing tobacco troopers. I remain a man of my word. After Kathy's press conference, Carrasco was back on the phone with Director Estelle. In such a tense moment, it is amazing how both men can seem this calm, collected, even soft-spoken, over the phone. To Carrasco and Estelle, this was less a battle of brute strength than a chess match between staunch opponents. Neither was close to wavering. But what is it you are proposing? I'm proposing that we gain those hostages back safely and that we give you an opportunity to get a new future for yourself, which the governor has promised your attorney that he would cause immediately to be reviewed. <laughs> He can shove it. Now, there's only one way that these people will see the light again, and that's for you to cooperate. You have the, the power. I've only got the power to cooperate as far as I have and to offer you safe passage and everyone else out of there safe passage with no loss of life. And as you know, we're not about to cause any violence to you or to anyone up there. 
I think we've indicated that several times during the last few days. Well, uh, I was under the impression that you people wanted to negotiate, but you people don't want to negotiate. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Now, that uh, we've been negotiating all along, and we have our negotiation requests, and you've made yours, and I think we've hit a middle ground. You have gained much of what you intended to do, I'm sure. You've gotten your case before the public. You've caused your state government to promise that it would be re-reviewed. Re I told you, mister, that they can shove that up their ass. I mean, I'm not interested in uh, what the government thinks. Is there any other unit that we could get you to? <laughs> Say, mister, who, who do you think uh, he's talking to? No, Senor Carrasco. That's right. Jim Estelle had used Carrasco's nickname, El Senor, the Lord. Flattery or respect? Maybe a little of both. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. That old white-haired judge in Dallas Didn't pay my story no mind Taking me down to Huntsville I'm bringing in a load of time They caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done On my way to Huntsville, but I'm looking for a chance to run. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 7, Fred, the Folk Hero. The manhunt for Rosa Carrasco was on. Back in Huntsville, Rosa's husband was about to get the big break he'd been waiting for. But something else was happening. In long interviews with news reporters during the siege, Carrasco often complained about the way he was treated by law enforcement and the prison system. Airing on the nightly news and printed on front pages across the country, Carrasco's complaints were getting people's attention. What kind of injustices do you think speaking of? Well, I'm talking about uh, the life I've led and uh, the way I've been uh, beat up, tortured by her, by law enforcement officials. I mean, I've been through the meal, I know how these people think, I know how they act. It's taken me, uh, I'm 34 years old. It's taken me about 18 years to learn their way. They've educated me in uh, this sense that I've uh, lived through, not that I've read from the book. And I don't hate all the American people, no. But there are certain politicians. 
right to hate because they they control. Not only do they control, they take advantage. I mean, uh, a man can only take so much. In a in a sense of the word, I had hate hate for them. I wanted to escape, but I wasn't making no plan. Believe me, I mean, I wanted to because it was in my blood. But then, uh, what really got to me is that they started uh, picking at me again. After I had pleaded guilty and all this, they all kept at me, at me, at me. Not leaving me alone. I mean, I'm not saying that these people here are responsible. But it's a system. In the 1970s, prisoners throughout the United States were rising up and rallying for their rights. They demanded more sanitary living conditions and better medical care behind bars. They also protested racial and religious discrimination. Now Fred Carrasco was being held up as an icon of the prisoner rights movement. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I'm not saying that I'm doing this for prison reform. Not by a long shot. But since I'm in it right now, and I might as well put a, a plug in for him because that's what they're talking about, prison reform, talking and talking. Uh, it, it's just a headache. I hate to hear people talk. Just make a, a lot of talk and no action. In other words, they've been uh, morally or uh, castrated. So, I mean, uh, I'm not that tight. But uh, the truth is, that they get fed, or we get fed, nothing but scrap. And I wasn't going to do my life like that. No way. I'd rather die like a man than uh, go through that. So, yeah, Fred Carrasco maybe wasn't the best spokesman for the movement. Here's prison teacher Aileen House, the hostage who escaped by faking a medical emergency. We, as teachers and librarians, have been on the reform side of this thing all the way through. But Fred's not interested in reform. He wants to get away from the United States. And I'm for letting him go. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Another rights movement was going strong in the early 70s, the Chicano movement. Again, some wanted to make Fred the poster child in the struggle for equal rights for Latinos. Back home in San Antonio, songs about Carrasco flooded the Spanish-language airwaves. Some folks were flat-out rooting for Carrasco to whip the prison system. When that uh, breakout happened over there in Huntsville, I was waiting myself to, to, to go to prison. And I got there about a month after the breakout. Henry Rodriguez is a political activist from San Antonio. In the 70s, he did time in prison for shooting another man who'd insulted him. Henry is a colorful guy. A local journalist once described him as having so much charisma, he could charm the rattles off a snake. Before leaving for the Huntsville prison, Henry ran a little bar with his wife in San Antonio. Everybody in the neighborhood, the common folk, you know, in the West Side, everybody was interested in Carrasco and what was happening to him. And, uh... We were glued to that uh, television, and especially Rosa, when she was riding all over the place, and they would try to pin her down. I, you know, we talked about uh, about Fred all the time, you know, because uh, he was a folk hero, let's put it that way. Everybody, you know, we grew up hating law enforcement, all the cops, you know, we, we hated them. 
because if, if, if they were they are brutal right now, they were really bad at the time. Carrasco's biggest fans tended to excuse his violent crimes. Henry is no different. He sees Carrasco as an old-time mob boss. El Capone, they saw him that way. Hey, that guy's cool. <clears throat> he does what he does, but that's between him and the people that he deals with, not not the common folk. He don't go around and, and rob, be robbing the poor people or beating up people or, you know, no. That, that way, they uh, it's the same thing. Growing up in my community, we we didn't have much to look forward to. Uh, the educational system was failing us badly. There was not enough opportunities for people to go into higher learning and, and, and you know, really become successful in corporate America and, and things like that. In a weird way, Carrasco gave hope to the little guy, the downtrodden. He dealt with his own kind, you know, they fought each other and this and that, you know, the, <clears throat> the people that they're in, into that kind of business. But to us, He's, he was a great guy, man. He, you know, became legendary in our community. We wanted him to be okay, and even my mom would say things, good things about him. She, that, that's how he was very well liked by some of the common folk and all the, the older folks and stuff like that. And Henry liked that Carrasco wasn't afraid to stand up to the man. We heard him on the radio talking, and somebody interviewed him, and. <clears throat> And uh, he was, you know, he said, you know, I, uh, this, uh, he was very much anti-system, called them all the tobacco chewing rednecks and stuff like that, you know. And uh, he, he was pretty cool, you know, the way he carried himself, you know. Here's Carrasco in his own words. The thing is, uh, we like to tell the people mm-hmm. that I am not the animal they painted me to be. Mm-hmm. I will not harm nobody mm-hmm. if they don't provoke me. And that's the type of uh, things uh, that uh, irritate me because uh, we're not playing mm-hmm. games. I mean, I mean, this yeah. is a serious thing. Mm-hmm. But these people here are used to uh, having everybody. Mm-hmm. They just kick them around and uh, yes, boss, mm-hmm. no boss. And uh, they think that yeah. uh, I'm going to do that. They're a bar of the truth, you know. Another San Antonio native, Amelia Torres, was a teenager in 1974. Rosa had gone to her high school. Amelia documented Carrasco's prison siege in her own way. I had a whole scrapbook about him. I don't know why I even did that. I was younger. And I would just, I would just save the newspaper every day. We got an old-fashioned scrapbook and cut out and pasted on there. All those days that he was, you know, they had it on the news day after day that he was holding those hostages. The Anglo establishment of Texas typically dismissed Carrasco as a thug, if not an all-out monster. After all, he did kill dozens of people, and he flooded his own community with dope. But one skinny white teenager from the Texas panhandle, named Joseph Charles Toich, was paying attention. Man, this guy was pre-Chapo, you know? Pre-Pablo Escobar. He was, a, he was the first one. And, you know, August 74, you know, on AM radio, they were broadcasting around the clock uh, about the prison siege. It was big news. When all that happened, uh, you know, there was all these corridos on the Latin radio, right? You know, the corridos, they afraid Gomez Carrasco. Joe played guitar. He was pretty good. During the second week of Carrasco's prison siege, Joe got his first gig. 
so I put up a sign at a music store in East Lansing, and I said, uh, guitar player looking for a band, and that's when Shorty and the Corvettes called me. And uh, said, hey, we're going to have a jam session at, uh, over in East Austin at the Riviera Lounge. Can you come? And I said, sure. And the bass player was named guy named Ben Marinas. And, uh, you know, my last name is Toits. It's German. That's hard to say. You know, so we're just going to call you Carrasco. <laughs> you know? And it stuck. Well, I thought it was pretty cool. I was just glad to be playing at Shorty and Corvettes. I was just happy that they accepted me playing guitar. I think you could call me Carrasco. That was even better. I thought it was a you know, great idea. And, you know, it, it wasn't like I intentionally said, I'm going to call myself Carrasco. It's just sort of a big accident, you know? And, you know, Ben said, hey, we're going to call you Carrasco. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I was, I think I was like 18 or 19 years old, maybe 20. Ben, the bassist who came up with Joe's new nickname, taught Joe to play boleros, polkas, and cumbias, and got him on the right track to play rhythm and blues. When Joe released his first album in 1979, he kept the nickname, but added a royal flourish. From now on, he was Joe King Carrasco the king of Tex-Mex rock and roll. The standoff had stretched on for six, seven, eight days. On the night of the ninth day, a Friday, a terrible rainstorm blew into the town of Huntsville. A bolt of lightning struck a breaker box. It knocked out power and filled the library with smoke. In the warden's office, just a stone's throw from the library building, Director Estelle saw an advantage. And he took it. Estelle decided not to turn the power back on. Well, things kind of went for the worst today. We've had a real bad day. Here's a hostage we haven't heard from yet, on the phone with a family member on the outside. Her name is Ann Fleming. She's 51 years old, a former high school and college librarian. In her staff photo for the prison, she has a wry smile, a boxy face, and kind of a puffy hairdo. I guess she knew about the, the electricity going off and the air conditioning going off. So we had no lights at all. And, and we didn't, and it was feel like eating because we were so down in the dumps and everything. And, and uh, negotiations were real bad this morning, but uh, about 8 o'clock they have picked up some. We don't know. We really won't know anything until tomorrow about how things are going. We just don't know what we're going to do yet, you know. I mean, things that just go back and forth, back and forth. You know how the game of checkers is, or poker, or something like that. Outside the library, the southeast Texas temperatures were topping triple digits. Inside, the hostages sweltered and despaired. Here's Judy Stanley. Everybody's pretty tired, getting pretty sick, you know. We're not much energy left, and everybody's depressed, and just about giving up hope. It's been a bad day for all of us. Prison guard Bobby Hurd called his wife, Judy, who was in the prison administration building just across the street from the Walls unit. I've been told to call you until you get back. <laughs> no, Bobby, hey now, come on. <laughs> hey, Mom. <laughs> Bobby, listen to me, baby. <laughs> we've, we've been strong from the first all through this, right? I know it. Bobby, I know that. Hang in just a little bit longer, Bobby, please. Bobby. I want to see you again. 
want to see you too. I know what that is. We all do. And I expect to. You hear me? Yeah. Bobby, please don't do this. You're making it hard on you. You're making it hard on me too. Don't, don't even, don't even talk about it. I can't help it. For 10 more minutes, Judy did what she could to console Bobby. Judy may not have wanted Bobby to say goodbye, but the negotiations had become so fraught, she really had no way of knowing if she would ever see her husband again. Meanwhile, Carrasco continued his media blitz. I just meant to go to another place, that's all. But the thing is, uh, I'm trying to get across is that if uh, the demands were met, the people would not be harmed. Another, I, I would only take four persons with me and they will be on a voluntary basis. And uh, they will come home safely. There's no two ways about that. The only thing uh, stalemate right now is that uh, the administration is not coming through, and that's it. Carrasco had asked for an armored car equipped with a two-way radio and a telephone. Director Estelle was open to providing the armored car, but first, he wanted Carrasco to release all the hostages, except for the four who'd agreed to leave with their captor. Seeking compromise, Carrasco made another overture. 
It was a plan that hostages Novella Pollard and Linda Woodman came up with. If Carrasco would release one of the captives, just one, he or she could meet face-to-face with Director Estelle to explain why Carrasco would not release everybody until he was safely inside the armored car. Carrasco's lawyer, Ruben Montemayor, again served as the go-between. Okay. I'll go ahead and meet with them and, uh, and, uh, and see what they say about the, uh, about the request. And, uh, and I'll tell them that you're going to send somebody down tomorrow. The hostage who Carrasco chose to send was Linda Woodman, the librarian who'd become his de facto secretary. Woodman had withstood the pressure of the siege better than most of the others. If anyone could convince Jim Estelle to relent and meet Carrasco's demands, it was Linda Woodman. There was just one problem. Carrasco's lawyer, Ruben Montemayor, was about to fly back to San Antonio for the weekend. Mr. Montemayor? Yes. This is Linda Woodman. Yes, Ms. Woodman. Could you delay your departure just a little bit and uh, let me come over to town? Okay. You will do that. We'll wait for you. All right, you'll tell Fred that you'll wait. Yes, I'll tell Fred I'll wait. On the morning of the 10th day, Linda crawled through the broken front door of the library, descended the concrete ramp, and ran across the prison yard to safety. Carrasco's lawyer called him with an important update. He was ecstatic. They're talking to Fred. I want to thank you. Uh, that was... That was... Let me put it this way. That was a very, very brilliant move on your part. The staff is considering it very, very seriously. They're making arrangements to get a truck from the Brink Armored Company. Uh-huh. Brink's truck. See. But they, 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 they're just making the arrangements. It'll probably be ready tomorrow. Now, I don't know what time, but it'll be ready tomorrow. Uh-huh. Hopefully. This was huge. The standoff between Fred Gomez Carrasco and the Texas prison system had drug on for more than a week. In the battle of wits and determination, Carrasco had stood firm, and now, by all accounts, he'd won. Relenting to his demands, prison officials agreed to give Carrasco a Brinks truck, his getaway car. They also agreed to throw open the back gate of the prison so he could drive to freedom. Carrasco had beaten the walls unit on his own terms. It was time to leave the library. Enter the Trojan Taco. Okay, getting back to this big taco that he's made, that the entire length of that consists entirely of the blackboard side, right? For a few days, inmate hostage Steve Robertson and a few of the women hostages had been constructing a mobile, bulletproof shield for Carrasco and his men to use when they finally exited the library. It's two blackboards, the way I understand, yeah. that are up on rows. They're green. You've but seen we're this talking track. about they're open, but just a blackboard on a stand. Yeah, on rollers, and they're open from here. So this was pretty incredible. You're listening to real tape of hostage Linda Woodman describing Carrasco's mobile shield, the so-called Trojan taco, to prison officials who are eager to learn about any weakness they can exploit if they are going to stop Carrasco from reaching the armored truck outside. Trojan Taco is pretty racist. Official police literature now refers to the shield as a Trojan horse. Others have called it the Taco Bell and even the Pinata. 
The shield was made from two heavy chalkboards on wheels. Now they put something up there on top of the blackboard. Well, see, first they put some boards across it. They went up into the attic and knocked down some wooden beams that are between the steel beams. And they laid those across the two blackboards to keep them steady. Now, the blackboards then would be each side of the shield. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the two ends have they closed, enclosed it with? They put, um, oh, I don't really know <clears throat> if it's um, some plywood or some cardboard, but they've gotten it anchored pretty securely. And then they have lined all of that with law books. On the inside or outside? outside. What have what they got holding the law books up there? This library tape, and it's pretty good stuff. In other words, the, that's, that's the end of the, the, the shield, the, the sides, the, the whole works. Everything is lined with Not books. the whole thing, but um, I would say from vest down. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. now, now, the legs are not going to be protected, but they're covered. They've put cardboard around the bottom, so you won't be able to see whose legs are whose. Uh -huh. Okay, then you're all going to be in that shield coming down. Seven, seven will be inside. Seven, it's born three. And you're going to be all handcuffed with alleged bombs. You're going to be guided by the other nine. They're going to weave you down the ramp in mass. Get in this truck with live TV coverage. Mm -hmm. Open up the end, and they'll everybody will unload right into that truck. Mm -hmm. Suppose he gets to the gate and it's locked, and nobody around him. What do you think he would do? If he could find no other way out, he would probably shoot them and himself. Or, or, or at least get in gunplay where he'd get shot. Well, I may be wrong, but I can't see him surrendering. <clears throat> under any circumstances. Under any circumstances. Carrasco shot one of the law books used to pad the outside of his Trojan taco. It was thick enough to stop a bullet. Hostages Vaughn Bezida and Judy Stanley decorated the inside of the shield with photos they found in a library encyclopedia. Mexican hero Emiliano Zapata, the namesake of Carrasco's only son, and Santa Ana, the Mexican dictator who defeated the Texas rebels at the Alamo in 1836. According to the book Eleven Days in Hell, the hostages even used crayons to draw maps of Mexico that they pasted inside the shield. By now, the siege had stretched on for 11 days. The library was filthy and overflowing with trash. He threw that restroom up. <laughs> Boy, they threw that building up. I mean, just destroyed it. The inside. You couldn't tell the library from the school part. And the office, all the, all the officers, uh, cabinets were torn out of them. It just messed up. They're trying to block this place, move these cabinets. They had those inmates to do all that. Despite living in squalor, the hostages had reason to celebrate. They were getting out. Jack Branch was happy to help build the mobile shield. Chalkboards, like, if you were standing up teaching, you'd have the chalkboard. So we put two of them together, separated with a little space there, so some people could get in it. 
get you some library tape, book tape. Take book, law library books onto the bulletin boards. That's how we did it. And they probably said, okay, this doesn't work. And we, we knew that when the, the time was coming, that's when they were gonna make their escape. And they had to assign the inmates who was gonna uh, do what. One inmate would go get the car, bring it around, so as when they come go down the stairs or the ramp, and who was gonna get in the car, and who was gonna be uh, in the uh, in between the chalkboards, and who was gonna be outside the chalkboards. I was trying outside. I was happy to be up and around and about, and that the thing was gonna be over. We was happy about that, everybody. After 10 long days, a funny thing happened. Jack was almost starting to like Carrasco. He was nice. Well, the Stockholm Syndrome uh, Well, you know, when you capture somebody and keep them in there for a while and they be nice to them and you finally end up going along with them. So that's, that's what happened. You, you saw that going on? Yeah. We were excited about being at that Trojan horse. We would do nice things for him in the prison. I would uh, send up good food for him, and we'd be glad to give it to him. We wanted to be nice to him. That's that's some uh, that's Stockholm syndrome is real, you know. We we just went along with him. We glad to... glad for them to get out. <laughs> Why did you want to do nice things for him? That's the Stockholm syndrome. You just it's a mind changing ordeal. We just people hold you so long till you just finally agree with them and do what they say. Nothing we could do but just follow them and and. Uh, Help him in any way he could. If you told Jack before the siege that he'd fall victim to Carrasco's manipulations, he wouldn't have believed it. Not, not really. Uh, you don't believe it until you get into it, a situation like that. I don't know how the Stockholm, the real Stockholm worked, but I could feel it working with me after I got out of there. Cause we agreed with everything they said. We wanted to help them get out. After brainwashing situation, get brainwashed. The hostages were feeling so festive, they even threw a party with cake and songs for the captor, Ignacio Cuevas, on his 43rd birthday. Inmate hostage Martin Carros was just happy to be getting out soon. Everybody felt relieved, like they were really going 
you know, let him go. <coughs> everybody hugged each, uh, each other and said goodbye. Everybody, we all felt nice. You know. When the Brinks truck was finally delivered to the prison yard on the afternoon of the 11th day, Carrasco ordered Martin outside the library and down the ramp to inspect the truck. So I went to that armored truck. He, with a walk talking, he was telling me what to look for where. He told me to get under it, and then inside, and in the back, and in the, oh, in the hood, and the front, where the front seats are. He told me to test the air conditions, and uh, to smell if no gas was coming out, you know, and if they were working good. He told me to leave them on, and the radios, and telephone, and the, the tires, check the tires out. No, he told me, uh, he made me drive it around and then backed it up. And he was telling me where to, you know, where to park it. He told me to park it there. And he told me to leave it on and go back. They handed me to the windows containers that supposed to be bombs. Told me to take them down there to to the truck. Oh, and I took some clothes down there too, you know, hostages clothes. The whole time Martine was testing out the Brinks truck, taking it for a test drive around the prison yard, backing it up to the library ramp, and loading it with supplies for Carrasco's escape, he was being watched. Unbeknownst to Carrasco, an assault team was hiding in the dining room, one floor below the library. Texas Rangers, an FBI agent, and prison officers were ready, waiting. Yes, they had given Carrasco his armored truck, but they were not going to let him leave without a fight. I had them become so involved with those people up there <clears throat> that uh, had I thought to, had I known what was going to happen, uh, not meaning it's not sincerity, I would have tried to help those people because uh, I really felt for them. That's Steve Robertson. When the still said he could have what he wanted, uh, the women jumped up, laughed, Carrasco uh, laughed. They all thought they were gone. Everybody thought they was everything would be all right. TDC would turn them loose. It came as a complete surprise to me when the shoot started. The big showdown is coming up next on Standoff. And I didn't know they were gonna shoot, but they did. So we got we got situated to bring the uh, Trojan horse. They called it. <laughs> And somebody yelled out, get down. And when he got down, he started shooting. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music Engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsville, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, 
and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.